Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and thanks for joining me for another journey into the art and magic of the cocktail. Today, we've got a really timely and important topic to discuss, garnishes. It's finally feeling like spring here in the eastern U.S. My fresh produce basket subscription from my local CSA begins in a couple weeks, and I know everybody's starting to kind of walk outside and realize, huh, things are growing again. Maybe I could stick some of this nice smelling stuff in my cocktails. I was able to get in touch with cocktail author and garden designer Leanne Lavin, who is releasing a book very soon called Finishing Touches and the Art of Garnishing the Cocktail. And she had a ton of great advice for those of you out there who are looking to up your garnish game. But first, I think it's time for you to make yourself a drink. Today's featured cocktail is the Pisco Sour, and I don't want to give away too much. But this drink came up in conversation during the interview with Leanne because we started to discuss all the amazing garnish moves you can make with shaken drinks that contain egg whites. To make a Pisco Sour, you'll need three ounces of Pisco, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, one ounce fresh lemon juice, one fresh egg white, and two dashes of Angostura bitters. After you combine all these ingredients, minus the bitters, in a shaker with ice, you shake vigorously until you can really feel the consistency of the drink begin to change inside the shaker. This is partially a feeling in your hands, and it's also partially a more muted sound as the ice shrinks and becomes muffled by the froth in the drink. So there's two clues you can get to when this drink is shaken enough. Once you're confident in the shakenness of your Pisco Sour, you just want to strain this into a stemmed cocktail glass and garnish with a few dashes of your Angostura bitters. If you use a little eyedropper, you can even make little designs that start to resemble latte art if you manipulate those drops with a toothpick before you serve them. You can kind of draw little designs in the top of the cocktail. Now, normally I do a shameless plug for our embitterment aromatic bitters here because I think they're great. But one thing Angostura has over us is a really robust color, and that's key for the garnish aspect of this drink. Because we don't sweeten or color any of our bitters artificially, you're just not going to get the same visual effect with our stuff when you start playing around with your bitters art on the egg white foam. So congratulations, Angostura. You win again. So... Now that you're dreaming of Pisco and delicious sour cocktails, let's get back to the topic at hand. In this discussion with Leanne Lavin, some of the topics we cover include an expansive approach to thinking about the garnish, going beyond citrus twists and brandied cherries to include other flavors and objects, even jewelry, the basic tools and techniques that will help you make great garnishes in your home. More thoughts on, of course, garnishing egg white drinks, how to read the trail of clues left behind by the history or ingredients of your cocktail to help develop an innovative finishing touch of your own, what to say to Leonardo da Vinci at a cocktail party, and much, much more. Here at Modern Bar Cart, we're eagerly awaiting the launch of Finishing Touches in the next few months. So please, please, please head over to the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast and check out all the ways you can follow Leanne and stay abreast of that book release. But hey, we've got our own sneak peek right here in this episode. So please enjoy this excellent conversation with garden artist and cocktail architect extraordinaire, Leanne Levin. Leanne, thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, we're we're excited to talk about garnishes today, and that is definitely an area of expertise for you. 
But before we jump in and start talking about those, could you just kind of introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us who you are, what you do, and basically how we got to be here chatting today? Sure. My name is Leanne, and I am a uh, garden designer and uh, an author. I've written The Hamptons and Long Island Homegrown Cookbook, and I came at that book from the garden standpoint. I was curious how chefs are inspired by the growers or the artisanal makers. So I think the ingredients are really what the food is all about. You know, I often say love is the greatest ingredient. Um, So I wrote that book and it was kind of like a food war, like a memoir, because it was talking about the chefs and then those, I asked each one who inspires them and then the recipes. And when you're as close to the garden as I am, you look at garden as art and so on. And you start to think about the garden in different ways. So as I was continued to write about gardens, I contributed to um, the seminal food book, Savor in Gotham, talked about um, the history of the green markets, farm to table, and a favorite of mine, Ladies Who Lunch. And uh, the more I wrote and the more I reviewed, then um, in terms of this book, uh, Finishing Touches, The Art of Garnishing the Cocktail, I was approached by the publisher, Cider Mill Press, and they asked me if I would like to write a book with them. Of course, you put down the phone for a second and you <laughs> fake pretend like, uh, let me check my calendar, my schedule. So, yes. And then they came back and said, um, it's going to be about cocktails. So that's one of my favorite subjects because I really believe in just a cocktail culture. You know, I love the idea of cocktail conversations and all the art that goes around cocktails and all of the accessories that go into it. So I just think this was such a rich environment for me to be able to play in. So they really gave me almost carte blanche, you know, to be able to put this together. So the the driving concept for finishing touches was this garden to glass. Right? So again, the ingredients are what mattered. And I thought that people thought of wine going with food, you know, pairing with it certainly, and to some extent, then beer, more and more, especially craft or artisanal beer. But the cocktail, for the longest time, people just didn't think about the food pairings. So my thought was to, as we say in gardening or in the culinary world, what grows together goes together. So I started to look at the food pairings with the cocktails and then really then getting into the tablescapes and the presentation of the cocktails and the food, and then getting really creative with the garnishes. So that was the background to, you know, how it all came about. Great. Yeah, it sounds like your backgrounds, you know, is a confluence of art, you know, nature and growing things and and food. And so that seems like a really great set of skills to bring to the table to write a book like that. Can you just tell folks briefly now, um, you know, like what the what the story is with the book? Where does it stand right now and where will they be able to get their hands on it? Yeah. So um, I had written the book with um, different key elements to it um, in terms of classic cocktails and uh, researching. And the publisher, of course, wanted to get the background on some of the classic garnishes. And then some of the new artful garnishes that I came up with, for example, I like to use a lot of jewelry, um, you know, as a pin, if you will, for the garnishes. Um, I also like to use some technology um, and with the uh, presentation. Um, So, for example, you could have your iPod, your iPhone out. You know, I did a a riff on a uh, sort of a grasshopper, if you will. So there's like a lot of animal or jungle scenes that go along with that. So I think those are Um, cocktail conversation starters so there were some requirements that the publisher had you know the classics and we wanted to be able to update those in a new and interesting way and then the tablescapes that went along with it with the food the food pairings of course I did maybe 90 some percent of the cocktails and the food and the history and I can't wait to tell you some of these great stories because as a writer that's what I do and I think even as a garden designer that's what I do we tell stories And then I also had about 10 or 12 mixologists from around the world, some from Miami, Los Angeles, New York, and London, you know, that helped contribute to it. And then putting together the book, then, of course, we had the big photo shoot that went with it. 
and Cider Mill Press has done some, they make beautiful, beautiful books. They did the New York Times cocktail book. They did the Paris cookbook. So the books are as pretty to look at and to hold and to read as well as serving as a recipe maker. So right now they're just reworking some of the in, in the designs internally. So the book should be out, you know, I don't know, like in a couple of months or something like that. Great. So we will definitely at the end of the interview, let folks know where they can reach you on social media, maybe to follow you uh, so that they can get announcements for when that book is finally published. Oh, for sure. They can go on, you know, follow me on Twitter, um, you know, Instagram and so on. So we do a lot of fun things awesome. leading up to it. Great. We will have those at the end of the episode as well as in the show notes. But for now, let's jump right in. Uh, and, and if you've listened to the podcast, you know that we kind of like to start basic and then kind of flesh things out once we've got a key understanding of the topic that we're, we're speaking about. So the first question I have for you is, what is the purpose of a garnish in a cocktail uh, essentially, what is it and what is its value? Uh, the Italians and the French have a saying that the eyes eat first. And I think the same way with a cocktail is that visually, I think it has to be delightful. It has to be compelling. It has to be sexy. You want to look at it. So a garnish can do all those things. It's like jewelry. And that's why I use jewelry in some of the uh, garnishes to hold some of the um you know, sort of aerial ballerinas, if you will, sort of perched on the side of the glass. So it has to look beautiful. But the other thing is that because cocktails are very sensual, using smoke or citrus or flowers and so on uh, in the drink is that it starts to suffuse our senses so we can smell it, you know, we can start to see it. And so we start to uh, embrace the cocktail before we even take our first sip. Right. Uh, there's a couple things that we uh, often speak about here on the podcast. One is that, that flavor is a fusion of two senses, right? It's it's a fusion of the taste, the, the five primary tastes on the tongue, and then also of, of smell, of olfaction. And then in addition to that, right, this, this saying, uh, this European kind of approach of eating with the eyes first also brings in kind of a third sensory modality here into our experience of the cocktail. So it, it, mm-hmm. that, that's a really um, important, I, I guess, thing that a lot of people in this, in this day and age of minimalism, uh, where, where there's a lot of very chic urban bars who are doing, you know, very pretty, but also very minimal things. Sometimes I feel like those garnishes get maybe overlooked a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we have such a variety of um, garnishes that we can use. So besides edible flowers, you know, the herbs, the spices, you know, salt, chocolate, um, and I think we've really kind of opened up the garden so much more in just the last couple of years, along with this more artful approach that the mixologists have taken to creating the cocktails. He, you know, way back when Jerry Thomas's, you know, first bartender's guide came out and why we have the classics that we do with garnishes of citrus, you know, lemon or orange and so on is that because they were so valuable then, you know, they wanted to use every last little piece of it. It was very exotic. It was a sign of conspicuous consumption to be able to not only indulge in a cocktail, but to be able to have such a um, luxurious garnish as something that was citrus. And I think today it's the same thing. We just seek out something more exotic, you know, whether it's yuzo or, you know, edible flowers from around the world or cherry blossoms or, you know, in my book, I put passion flower that's ubiquitous in Ecuador, one of the places that I go to work every January. And people don't even know you can eat those things. We have a monoculture in food. And I think to a certain extent, we have a monoculture in our cocktails is that, you know, these things, these garnishes have become almost institutionalized. Whereas recently, I think when mixologists and at home bartenders and cocktail makers, they realize that they can, um, you know, give free expression to what they want to create with their garnishes. I like this concept of breaking the monoculture. So I think we'll use that as kind of like a tuning fork for our conversation here. Um, what 
can we use as like a useful heuristic to start thinking about garnishes in categories? Because I know that most people kind of understand a garnish to be this thing that you put on top of, maybe in the cocktail, but are there, are there different categories of garnishes that maybe perform different roles for the cocktail? Mm. I broke it down in the finishing touches art of garnishing the cocktail book into categories like using sort of garnish stars, as you know, if you will. So some are eye-catching and some are adding the flavor or, you know, that sensual delight that we talked about. So in one category, it's jewelry. So like I mentioned, I use pins or earrings or tie bars because, you know, I think um, jewelry, especially when you look at some of the uh, ones, you can find them in, um, you know, uh, estate sales or secondhand stores, but they have a lot of animals and flowers and things like that. So it sort of looks like that. I was talking about that ballet dancer using that sort of presage lift there so it can lift that up with the uh, citrus or whatever that you're using. There's also edible glitter. So um, you can start to feel a little bit like Tinkerbell or something like that with pixie dust. So that's another category. There's uh, salt air, there's foam, you know, that you can make from salt water and a, a soy lecithin that makes the garnish sort of impart, impart this salinity and a texture to it. I think it's fun because it kind of looks like a sexy bubble bath, <laughs> which is cute. More and more mixologists are using smoke. And so that's another category, fire. Um, so people are using fire to ignite their uh, cocktails. Painting, there's a lot more of this. I think you see even in the commercial bars where they're using an edible paint to put everything from flower petal to a monogram to, you know, maybe the bar's tender's name or something on that sour drink foam. And they use the bitters to spray on top from an oil mister. So I think that's beautiful as well as tasteful the ashes, then there's all fun things like cereals, all different kind of crazy cereals that you can use as garnishes, cheeses. People have done this in the past with some Bloody Marys, and that has a great history to it as well. Meat, and we're seeing more of this with everything from faux gras to steak, bacon, ribs, little cheeseburgers, buffalo wings, pigs in a blanket, BLTs. I've even seen fish. So grilled smoky octopus tentacles or grilled fried shrimp or sushi on it. And um, then fun things like toys. And, you know, in the past, we've seen parasols and things sort of perched on there. But today you can theme it around a party, an event, you know, everything from the Oscars to, you know, a birthday party or a wedding. So you can theme what the garnish is going to be. So I broke it down into those different categories and then provided examples that people might want to pursue. Right. It seems like there is just so many, there's so many options in the garnish world that it, it's almost a little intimidating. So I, I think maybe, you know, if I were to approach garnishing a cocktail that I, I came up with for a specific event or for a specific get together, you know, I would probably ask a few basic questions. You know, I would first ask, you know, all right, Who's going to be drinking this? What is what's in this cocktail? Why are we drinking this? And as you kind of ask these questions and identify things like the ingredients, the purpose, then you can sort of start to identify things that you might be able to utilize as garnishes. Um, and, and some of the questions will then, of course, branch into sub-questions like, is this garnish here to be seen or... Is it here to be also smelled or even like in the case of the some of the examples that you just gave ingested, right? Is this, you know, am I making a little mini slider to put on top of my uh, garden driven Bloody Mary or am I going to, you know, have a salted or smoked herring on my uh, kind of Scandinavian themed martini? So uh, I, I think asking questions uh, if you're kind of stumped on your garnish game is, is a really important thing to do. Um, and, and I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I think you've characterized it that way very well. And I think people have to think about their cocktails in terms of, you know, what their mood is. So for me, you know, I like a classic martini um, or a Manhattan, and I like the elegance and the simplicity of that. You know, I love their backstories and so on. So maybe it's a time of day or maybe it's your mood. But when you think of what cocktails can do, that they're essentially something fun to have. And so if you want to 
embellish or amplify the garnish, then it's just your imagination. So the way you characterize by saying, do I want it to be something that tastes good? Is it a visual delight? You know, is it a little bit of both? But it does take a little bit of planning to go into it, but then the rewards are such that it's already a cocktail conversation starter and it's fun. So some people are intimidated by the planning part of it to go up front, but I think that's, you know, what the cool sexy part of cocktails is. Right. Garnishes are totally one of those things where if you are somebody who's very comfortable home bartending, you can very easily, as I do, end up slacking off on the garnish front mm -hmm, because, mm -hmm. oh, I'm just making this for myself. You know, it's nothing fancy. And so then the cocktail becomes a little bit more utilitarian. And at that point, it loses some of that allure and that sexiness that you've been talking about. So mm -hmm. I think these are, this is a great, uh, great thing for us to be talking about. And of course the people who listen to this podcast are primarily home bartenders. We have a lot of mm -hmm. bartenders who listen as well. And I'm sure that they, they have their kind of garnish game, uh, for their establishments pretty, pretty well in mm -hmm. hand. But for home bartenders, one of the big questions I had was what are some of the tools that people should have in, in their, you know, kind of kitchen drawer or in their pantry to be able to make a basic set of garnishes, whether that's using citrus or fresh stuff or maybe stuff from around the house? Well, I think sort of as a gateway, I think into getting into like really fun and creative garnishes is citrus because whether it's a lemon or a lime or whatever it is, is that it's really a canvas. And so you can do so many things with it, even with just a simple knife, you know, so you can make a twist, you can curl it, you can spiral it, you can tattoo it. So you can go and for, you know, relatively uh, little investment that you can get a number of different cocktail garnish utensils, you know, and they sell them in sets, if you will. But you can also start off with something just as simple as a small paring knife, you know, that you want to be, you can cut your citrus up with it. So I think you, you start off by doing something very simple. Another thing that's very simple to do is just cut your herbs. So you just go out with your, you know, small little scissors. And I can take thyme, for example, and take little teeny tiny clothespins that I buy and then clip them on the side of the glass. And it has that aromatic herbal fragrance which is just perfect with like an Aperol spritzer, for example. So there's lots of very simple ways that you can invest in good cocktail garnishes and just, like I said, have some fun with it. Right. Yeah. A good paring knife is, of course, indispensable in any home bar kit. One of the things that I use often is just a regular vegetable peeler, but yeah. there are mm -hmm. uh, so many different models of peelers out there. Uh, there's some that are, you know, the traditional kind of side to side peelers, but then there's some peelers that almost look like um, they've got a shape like one of those paint rollers almost where you've got a handle and then it kind of flares out and it allows you to take really wide swatches of the citrus peel, which in some cases is really useful. Um, and then I also like, uh, toothpicks, having toothpicks on hand, mm -hmm. uh, to me is very useful. Um, but are there any other things that you can think of that might fit in like a, just a kitchen, you know, the, the utensil drawer that people might be able to stock up on? Well, I do have a lot of different toothpicks and they make, you know, very creative, you know, sort of, uh, decor, if you will, accessories. So for every holiday that you can think, and I have standard ones that are like the metal ones that you can use that are just, you know, classic. But I honestly, I did the whole book and I didn't invest in anything really grand. It was just, you know, things, you know, that I had. But I think a good cocktail shaker is very important. And, um, of course, making your own simple syrups is very important. Um, so you can make all of those and store them and keep them fresh. So you don't really need you know, to invest in a lot of extra equipment unless you really want to. I mean, I have a home speakeasy. I have a bar cart. I am fully equipped with everything. But I think, especially for your listeners, um, I think if they're just starting off or they're, you know, home mixologists, simple is best. Absolutely. Simple is great. And a lot of the things that you were mentioning earlier, based on your interests, of course, 
are, are from the natural world. Uh, and so just having, you know, maybe one of those a set of little clothespins to clip the herbs to the side, that's a really great move. Uh, I personally have a set of small metal cocktail picks. I've got four and they've got little fletching on the back. So they look like little arrows. So that's a fun <laughs> little thing to, uh, to skewer my, my citrus twist with. And, I guess on the more advanced side of things reside things like uh, fire, for example, if you're going to be doing flaming garnishes and, um, you know, that, that once you, once you start getting into to that sort of thing where you're, where you're actually, you know, stenciling things into egg white foam or, you know, drawing patterns in your Angostura bitters, uh, that, that's a little mm -hmm. bit more in depth, but it seems like there's a, definitely a scale, uh, kind of a sliding scale of what you can do. And it seems pretty accessible at least starting out. Very. And I, you know, encourage, you know, those who really enjoy a cocktail culture, to think about using real ingredients because you know if you have a love for cocktails the taste is what it's all about and then the visual sensation of course but when you look back into the history of you know where some of these original classics cocktail garnishes came from for one i'm fascinated by the maraschino cherry so for a lot of people they use that little rock hard bullet red thing which is i tell people please do not pursue that you know the original marasca cherry only comes from one place. It comes from the Dalmatian coast in Croatia. And, um, you know, because they can grow it there in their mountains and their sandy soil, they had these whole preserved cherries. But then when prohibition came in this country, they were forbidden because those maraschino cherries were soaked in Italian liqueur. So there was a gentleman here in the States and he said, well, I'll take care of that. So he just made up that cherry and then dyed it red, which, you know, subsequently has been banned. But now we're getting back to the original Luxardo and the real maraschino cherry. So there's something that you can buy, and it's original, and it's, you know, the best-tasting cherry. I make my own at home. If you don't have your own cherry trees like I do to pick, you can get canned Michigan or Oregon cherries, and you can make your own, you know, with citrus peel and some cinnamon and star anise, and then you can keep that in your refrigerator. And that's something that it you can use as a garnish and whether it's a toothpick or the metal pick, but it's such a classic and it's such a good ingredient. So that can make all the difference. It's a great story. It's great history that goes with it. And that's, um, you know, and another, I mean, I love this story of the onions. I mean, uh, the onions in a Gibson, you know, some people say that it was Charles Dana Gibson and the Gibson girl that he had sort of laid claim to putting this into his martini for a Gibson drink and claims that, was his idea but it's interesting that except for bloody mary the gibson is the only cocktail that has onions in it just a small little pearl onions so you can buy them now they have them scented with everything from peppers to ahi amarillo the very more spicy peruvian yellow pepper so this adds you know another element to it but I just encourage people to really go for like the best ingredients that are going to be used in their garnish. You know, and then as you get into it more, of course, you can then be a little more dramatic about it. Right. Yeah, there's definitely both a drama and a DIY aspect to garnishes. And it's kind mm -hmm. of that DIY thing I'd like to zoom on. Uh, zoom in on here. And I wanted to throw out a scenario to you and see if you had any advice to folks. And that scenario is, let, let's say... One of our listeners is trying to throw a cocktail party and they've, they've gone through all the work of developing a cocktail and dreaming up a, a, an awesome garnish. And let's say that that garnish involves fresh things. My question is if logically you have to prep those garnishes before folks get there, is there any effective way when it comes to herbs or citrus or any other fresh ingredients to keep things well preserved in the couple intervening hours between when you have to prep the garnishes and when folks actually start to arrive? I think when you have very fresh ingredients and they're prepared beforehand, you can just keep them uh, in the refrigerator. You know, as long as it's not out in the hot sun, that it's not going to be a problem at all. Absolutely. And one tip that I've actually received from bartenders 
is that if you have to do citrus in particular, especially if you're taking um, really thin or really narrow peels of citrus, um, it's actually useful to, to grab yourself a Ziploc bag and take some paper towels, soak them in water, and if you have to preserve those citrus peels uh, for a couple hours in the fridge, putting them kind of between two moist paper towels is going to prevent uh, some of those oils from evaporating or drying out, which makes the citrus peel a little bit more difficult to deal with because if you think about it, oil and water don't really mix. And so placing <laughs> the oily peel right between those two paper towels is a good little little bar hack that I've come across. Yeah, so if you've prepared beforehand, you keep it in the refrigerator, and like you said, you want to preserve the, the oil, the essence of that. But if you have it out and it's in a glass, uh, you know, small dish or on your marble tabletop, you know, where you're cutting your sized garnishes for your drinks, I think you should be just fine. I mean, the thing about the beauty of cocktails is that they are very ephemeral. So as with any good food and real ingredients, you know, this isn't something that you're going to want to preserve for a long time. It's not like a bar, a commercial bar where you're out. You need to keep all those garnishes and the little cups and things like that. I mean, this is a couple of hours, you know, for a cocktail party. So I don't think you run the risk of that. You know, this is a joke, you know, sort of a, a humorous look at cocktails when they say, like, there's no doggy bag for cocktails. You know, you, you're going to be drinking them right then and there and enjoying that moment. So I think fresh is just key. Exactly. And I think that's really good for folks to keep in mind if they're starting to worry about like, oh, am I going to be able to create these garnishes for my next event? Or is that just going to be too much work? Just keep in mind that it's going to be over soon. And uh, the key is to enjoy it while it's there. So I think that's really good advice. It is. It is. And I think that is the I think easy and fun part to approaching doing a cocktail party is to say you can prepare almost all of this beforehand or have someone do it for you and have it available and ready to go. So it's not like cooking where you have to deliver it right then and there. For the most part, whether it's a blended drink, a tiki drink, or you know, shaking it in your cocktail shaker, you can make most of these beforehand, have it ready to go, and then just shake it up on the spot and have it ready for you or your guests. Exactly. And it's very easy to just create a dish of garnishes for guests to kind of self-garnish with. And as long as it's available with them when they receive their cocktail, then uh, you don't even have to worry about that. If you can just prep them ahead of time, stick them in a dish, that's you're pretty much good to go. And uh, you are a super popular host because you thought of that. I think it's beautiful to be able to have, whether it's rosemary or lavender or thyme, all the different herbs and maybe colored sugar, things out. And, and yes, let people garnish it themselves because that will delight them. They'll say, what is this? How do I get that? So they have lots of questions. You can talk about it. You can suggest things to them. So um, this is a very exuberant way to have a party and have people participate with you. So there's no super last minute crush or preparations that you have to worry about. That's really great. I will say though that the ice, yeah, the ice is really important though. For a lot of people, they don't have good ice and that really has to be very clean and pure, you know, and not using some old ice trays or things because for many drinks, ice is a critical component and yet we're using kind of like funky water <laughs> to make the ice. So I just encourage people to use like the freshest, um, cleanest water that they have. For sure. And if uh, anyone out there listening to this is interested in learning more about ice, you can go back into the Modern Bar Cart archives and check mm. out our Bar Cart Foundations episode on ice. Uh, there's a lot of fun videos out there on YouTube, but if you want to kind of dive into more of the nerdy science of it, we've got that covered for you as well. One of the things that I think about when I was make, writing the book, Eric, was that think about how things go together. So, for example, with boba pearls, you know, a lot of people, it's just like a fun drink that they love that. But that really comes in all different colors. So the boba tea uh, pearls are made from tapioca. And a lot of people don't know that tapioca comes from a cassava plant. So I paired it with a root vegetable for like little ramekins, little heart ramekins that people could have. But the boba pearl cocktails, they come in orange or yellow or black or, or uh, purple color, which is like really fun. So you see, you start to think about the ingredients. 
I also used a lot of uh, European digestives or amaros or things like that. So it's, you know, real ingredients that go in and pair up very nicely with the food. And then when you're using things like candy and so on for the garnishes, that, you know, marries up. Like I did a couple of places that meant a lot to me in my life. So Copenhagen in Denmark, Ecuador, where I go every year for menu development and garden design, Japan, Cuba, uh, Switzerland, where I went to school. So these places I pulled from their, you know, native drinks and did a little spin on it. So the one, for example, from Copenhagen, when I used this pink beer and the cherry herring and the aqua V, and then using licorice as a garnish, along with a little mermaid, <laughs> because it goes with the ingredients that are in it. So if people are at a loss of how to garnish, I suggest that they look to what are the ingredients that are inside the cocktail itself, agave, root vegetables, uh, gin is so floral, goes with edible flowers, champagne. So you can get a clue as to how you want to garnish it based on what the ingredients are. Yeah, that, that's that's a really good point. Uh, and I think it's really empowering. I, I really like the way that you approach uh, designing cocktails, especially from the garnish perspective, because it, it really it, it really is just there and available to everyone. I, I have a lot of interactions with folks uh, where they're very hesitant or skittish or maybe just tentative about taking a risk when it comes to cocktails and you can kind of just see them in the interaction, just locking up and, and they're trying to be conservative or uh, they don't want to mm. look silly or sound silly with something that they say or that they think. Um, but really uh, what I'm hearing from you is like, you know, just take a step back, look at your surroundings and use the inspiration from what's already there to guide your art. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. The ingredients will talk to you. Yeah. One quick question I did have, and this is just a uh, completely personal little curiosity, uh, because I've been to all the fancy cafes and seen the latte art and seen all the stuff on Instagram. And we've done an episode about egg-based cocktails where we've kind of broken down the art and the science to creating beautiful, frothy drinks that then, of course, you can garnish with things. Uh, my question is, how does one go about making the, that beautiful art on top of a drink that's garnished with egg whites? Well, first of all, I'm glad that you said that because some of my dear friends um, own Machu Pisco, and it's won all kinds of awards, and I love this ingredient. The Pisco is absolutely delicious. And for people who haven't tried it, I really encourage them. And so the Pisco really lends itself to this foamy, you know, top that you're talking about. So I think when you have the bitters, and especially if you put them in the spray bottle, and then you can then out and you can use the paintbrush also, but that can go on the top of it to create any kind of graphic, you know, that you want. So there's definitely recipes in the book. I don't want you know, create them all here, but you can use any kind of flavor that goes with it. So if you're looking for something that has maybe an orange or a cherry or licorice, you know, flavor to it, but then you can spray that right on top of it. It's a very good canvas for being able to hold a graphic. Right. And delicious. Oh, absolutely. I know, I know some folks are a little bit hesitant uh, to consume, you know, raw egg whites know. in your, in your cocktails. But yeah. one, one point that I really want to make is that, it looks just like the foam at the top of a really good Pilsner, right? It's that white, thick, foamy stuff. But unlike that foam, the egg whites in a in a shaken cocktail are actually gonna they're gonna stand mm -hmm. up. They're gonna they're gonna sit, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so people don't need to worry about whether something like, for example, a couple of coffee beans, if you're making some sort of espresso themed cocktail are going to be able to sit on that because the answer is they totally will. So I think people should feel a little bit more free to play around with what goes on top of those egg white cocktails, because it really does form a really cool natural matrix. Uh, and it really That's adds the cool. texture. And people shouldn't be concerned about it because you're, again, it's, uh, you're using the best and the freshest ingredients so your egg whites are very fresh. You don't have to worry about, especially for home uh, mixologists, that it's been sitting somewhere. But if people think about the egg white topping, 
people eat meringue and that's like almost the same kind of ingredients just beat longer than the egg whites that go into a, a pisco or whiskey sour and so on and um i might even like tease people a little bit and to say you're missing out on a really great cocktail and a really great drink so whether they were pisco sours or whiskey sours these are just classics that have uh, remained enduring and at the at the top of the cocktail uh, you know, selection for a reason, because they're beautiful and they taste delicious. So it might take a little bit more work, but then the reward is just so great. So I, I encourage people to try it. And then you'll say, what was I afraid of? This is a really fun thing. And today we have so much technology to help us out. So I think people should look to that when they're preparing their cocktails and their garnishes, because technology has advanced in so many ways to be able to help us. Absolutely. So we've learned, wow, we've been talking for about half an hour here and we've, we've learned a ton. Um, just to recap, we've learned that garnishes are actually probably encompassing a wider spectrum of objects and ingredients than we normally think of, right? It's not just the brandied cherry or the citrus twist. It is jewelry. It's herbs. It's kind of non-food items. Um, and we've kind of gone through a lot of useful things for folks to think about as they're trying to pick up tools and uh, think up ways to incorporate garnishes into their home bartending toolkit. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners before we jump into some lightning round questions? I would very much like for your listeners to be able to embrace a cocktail culture and use their imaginations. Yes, look to books, hopefully uh, with mine, but some of these star mixologists make, it's not precious. It's just that you have a reverence and you're honoring the ingredients that go into cocktails. If you are looking to this kind of a lifestyle, it says you're you're already on board with it. So here we're just opening up the opportunity for you to see more creativity, more of what you can do and have some fun with it. There's backstories that go with every cocktail from the jazz age on and cocktails are really uniquely American. And so there's just fun stories that go along with the cocktail. So, you know, do a little research, not only for the ingredients, but where the cocktail came from, how was it made? Uh, what was the lore that went behind it? And then make your own. So, just as those bartenders and uh, barkeep uh, made up their own creations, that you can do it too. So I think you look at the ingredients. What do you like to eat? What do you like to drink? And then think of a way to put it together. Right. Yeah, I like the idea of kind of taking a story that already exists and then adding your personal touches to that story. It's a way of both communicating with the past and the heritage of kind of what we're doing here with cocktails, as well as a way of kind of asserting that, hey, you know what? The store's not done yet. You know, the cocktail's not dead. And and here is and here's why. So I think that's really useful advice. And uh, I know that after listening to this episode, uh, we're probably going to be flooded with Instagram posts of everybody trying their hand at some fun new garnishes. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And if, if you want to tag us in anything out there, listeners, that's just at Modern Bar Cart on Instagram. And uh, feel free to, uh, to tag Leanne. Leanne, where can they tag you? I'm at Garden underscore Glamour. Uh, Instagram. And is that glamour the uh, normal good old American spelling or you stick a U in there like the Brits do? <laughs> Part of my British background. Yes, I have G-L-A-M-O-U-R. So garden underscore glamour. Beautiful. Okay. And, and then on Twitter, it's just garden glamour. So that's it. But I, I'd like to read just a little quote that I put in there from the book in the um, intro. So, you know, of course, in the Roaring Twenties, things were wonderful in the jazz age when all the frothy cocktails were out. But then I said, like a fairy tale coma-induced divinity, the cocktail seemingly slept for a generation or two, and then the cocktail renaissance blossomed. So there's so much copy that's been written about Mad Men and their fellowship with the Working Days cocktail and the two martini lunch. But it's just it's part of our our part of our culture and craft cocktails is just a unique place where people come together and can really worship at this cocktail culture altar that we have. It's Absolutely. a party. Yeah, it is a party. 
and so should your garnishes be. <laughs> Ready for lightning round questions? I hope so. All righty. Jumping right in. What is your favorite cocktail? And if you can't name a favorite of all time, what's a cocktail that you've recently fallen in love with? My favorite cocktail of all time is what I have in the book is the Duchess Martini. So I have a martini every night. But recently, I have to say, I've liked Manhattans and um, a little bit more of the tequila drinks. Can you take us through the Duchess Martini recipe and maybe explain its place in the, I guess, martini spectrum? Mm. So uh, my martini is that I like to have potato vodka. And I love the potato vodka from Long Island. And I just think it has such a good natural ingredient to it. It's very pure. I keep the potato vodka in the freezer. I like it very cold. And same as my glass. And I have just a classic martini cocktail glass. I like a twist. So I like a Dolan dry vermouth in it. And I do like that it's very floral. So unlike a lot of uh, martini drinkers where they like to just put the vermouth in and throw it out, I like almost a third uh, to two thirds of the vodka. And I think it's crisp and cool and very floral. Dolan just makes a superb uh, vermouth. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of of their line. It it tends to be lighter, more floral. Uh, and so mm-hmm. you're using, let's say, maybe two ounces of your potato vodka, maybe uh, three half to three quarters of an ounce of the Dolan Dry Vermouth, and anything else in that Duchess Martini. Just the twist, and so just right around the top. I grow my own lemons, and so I like to have the fresh ingredients that way. And uh, homegrown lemons, uh, even in the Northeast here in New York, you can grow inside, and their skin is just a lot more soft than a um, imported lemon. So I just wearing that around the top, express all of that oil in there, and um, toast. Beautiful. That sounds like a really elegant yeah. drink. I think so, too. It looks nice. <laughs> Yeah, nothing wrong with a good martini. My favorite take is the Vesper, kind of like the James Bond martini. It's almost almost the opposite of yours because you're not chill, necessarily chilling the glass. You're shaking the hell out of it, which makes it cloudy at first. Uh, and I really enjoy the aspect of that drink that once you shake it and you pour it into the glass, it clears up over the course of the couple minutes that it mm. takes those little ice shards to melt and it goes from being uh, kind of cloudy and mysterious to really clear and just absolutely beautiful it is beautiful i was really drawn when writing the book finishing touches how <clears throat> excuse me some people they stick with one drink like that's their only drink that they'll have and then others are much more adventurous and are always trying something new so i find that very curious as well yeah. Yeah. I find that when, uh, when I'm experimenting, usually what I'll do is I'll fixate on one thing, but then inevitably as I experiment with it, no two cocktails end up turning out the same. Like I'm always kind of messing with yeah. something. So I'm kind of like in the middle of that, but here's a question that's fairly new, but people have been responding to it really well recently. So if you were a cocktail tool or ingredient, what would you be and why? Mm. If I was a cocktail ingredient, I would have to be a simple syrup. Yeah. And I think because it's elegant, it's glamorous, and it's natural, and it has such variety. You could have a different simple syrup every day of the week. Absolutely. And it's one of those uh, kind of... It, it, it's a foundational cocktail ingredient, but it can also mm-hmm. just take on the qualities of whatever you put into it, right? Yeah, it's sort of like a chameleon in a way or a true cosmopolitan. And I don't mean the drink cosmopolitan, but cosmopolitan is something that goes well in a, in a very elegant way with others. Absolutely. If you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would that person be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Paint a picture for us. Hmm. Well, there's so many people because I love history, but I guess I would have to say Leonardo da Vinci because he was such a man of great talent um, across so many different genres or categories. So we could talk about art, we could talk about science, 
maybe a little bit of religion. I think he was a lover of life. So if I had to pick just one, I mean, he's a Renaissance man for a reason. <laughs> I think I would do that. Um, but if if I could, I would just love to be, you know, at a cocktail party, you know, at the Algonquin with all of the writers and artists that were there and uh, really enjoy the cocktail party with them. I was Dorothy Parker, you know, for so many Halloweens because I just love her take on the jazz age and cocktails and I love dressing up that way. So that would be really fun. Can you give us just a really quick uh, Wikipedia summary of the Algonquin? It's a hotel uh, here in Gotham, here in New York, and it was a place where great writers, uh, authors, and painters, that they would meet most every afternoon. And in those days, in the jazz age, uh, <laughs> for so many artists, even today, I hesitate to say that they really believed that, you know, the, the drinking and the cocktails fueled their creative spirit. So it was in the days before social media, but there they were being very social and sat at the bar at the Algonquin Hotel uh, here in New York. And so it was a, it's a great, very iconic uh, time for American art. And I think for the cocktail, it really embodies that sort of Roaring Twenties spirit. Right. One thought I did have about Leonardo da Vinci as you were talking about him is that I recall I took a class in grad school where we studied uh, some of his art and his work extensively. And there's one piece that really sticks out to me where uh, da Vinci is trying to visualize on paper hydrodynamics or the way that, that water interacts and mm. currents form. And in his sketchbook, the way that he made it kind of appear, you know, being an artist was almost like long hair flowing. And, and so you were looking at this uh -huh. very scientific portrayal for its time, but it just had this very uncanny appearance as also being, you know, human hair. And so I think out of anybody that you could pick, he above all would appreciate the art of the garnish where, you know, this one aspect of the cocktail is, is simultaneously part of the cocktail, but also kind of extends the conversation and extends what the cocktail is. I love that, Eric. That's just brilliant. It yeah. just adds to my love for Leonardo. And I'm <laughs> sure that he was probably thinking something about a cocktail doing that. I have a feeling he was. Are there any books about cocktails or garnishes that have been particularly influential or enjoyable for you? Oh, my goodness so many books um, and people. It wasn't that long ago, James Beard uh, just started recognizing drinks, you know, as a complete category. Brooklyn Brewery, Garrett, you know, I think he's a great influence because what he even does with the beer, you know, bringing in people like Lior Sicarvis and spices and so on. So it's taking something that's rather banal and elevating it. And I think, you know, we do that. I think all of the, uh, my publisher's books, you know, that I've talked about the um, Cider Mill Press with the New York Times, the classic books. I found a book when we moved into our country house. It was a Japanese, little small Japanese book. It was from 1952, and it had all these American cocktails in there that the American servicemen used in Japan. And so I think the people that we bought our house from must have been a serviceman. So I encourage people to go back to some of the old, you know, original books. And so, you know, the Jerry Thomas, the bartender's guide and so on. And I think today uh, on Instagram and some of the blogs and things that people are being just spectacularly creative. Um, it's very inspiring. When I see the kind of cocktails that are coming out with the garnishes and the garnishes glass, it's just incredible. Beautiful. Yeah, we'll, we'll try and see if we can find that little Japanese cocktail book from 1952. That That's really interesting to me, especially because uh, we recently launched a Japanese-style cocktail bitters, and uh, Japan has oh. just such a unique aesthetic uh, and, yeah. and approach to that. So we'll t oh, we'll... okay. I have a picture of it. I'll send you the Bartender's Guide to the Best mi Mixed Drinks by Kaizawa Kasawa. Um, it was distributed by Charles and Tuttle Company. So there's like a whole background story to that, too. Awesome. Yeah, well, we will definitely find some sort of esoteric link to that on the show notes page. And uh, even if you can't buy it on Amazon, we'll see if we can at least give you a little backstory on that book. Mm-hmm.
if you could give any piece of advice to someone who's just starting to learn about or experiment with cocktails or garnishes, what would that advice be? I think it would be first to to follow your heart and to look into what uh, a cocktail culture is. So it's much more than just the drink. I would say that you look at what cocktails have such a potency, you know, that they can sort of have this power and influence beyond the drink. It's a social arbiter. When you think about it, it's like when you think they even influence our time of day, it's a cocktail hour, a happy hour, a nightcap, or the morning after, and so on. So it can influence your life in a very positive and fun way because you can obviously meet people, you can impress people. I think you can have fun with it. It's a way to express your creativity. And it's always in a social milieu, if you will. So you're, you're, you're with friends, you're with family. And so look at your ingredients, get the very best, do as little as possible to it, and make it visually attractive. Beautiful. That's a really good set of bullet points uh, for folks who are trying to just get into the cocktail world. I think those 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 little pieces of advice in the sequence that you listed them are a really great kind of roadmap to creating great cocktails. Mm. So anything else before we give you your, the chance to list one last time your email, your yeah. social handles, anything else you want to communicate? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm talking about like how cocktails and the home cocktail artists can create like a whole, how do you say, like a, uh, a like a fashion setup for them is that you start to think about all the different glasses and so the different cocktails uh, can be used in a very specific glass. Um, tiki drinkers, they can have everything from skulls to coconut shells and so on like that. Uh, but a well-stocked, you know, home bar, you can have so many fun accessories to customize your drink, especially like the mixed drink. So you're thinking about your coasters or your napkins, the straws, the swizzle sticks. We talked about toothpicks before, but you think about the bottle openers or the muddler pitchers, these ice buckets and the cocktail shakers. But here's a whole uh, collection of accessories that just adds to the aura and the romance of finishing touches and garnishing your cocktail. Absolutely. Yeah. uh, One of the things that we often come up with here on the podcast is that it can be absolutely simple and you can do things in a minimalist way. But uh, once you start going down the rabbit hole, there's almost no end to the fun (laughs) and the complexity. Exactly. All right, Leanne. How can people stay abreast of developments with the book so that they can pick up a copy when it gets published? Or if they want to drop you a line or follow you on social media, how can they do that? They can follow me on Twitter at Garden Glamour, at Instagram at Garden underscore Glamour. They can follow my blog, Garden Glamour, Duchess Designs. They can email me at foodanddrinkny at gmail. Beautiful. And if anybody out there listening is the terrible person who got to that Instagram handle before Leanne did and necessitated that underscore, we're going to find you. Oh, I love that. (laughs) That's so true. That's me. (laughs) Give it up. All right. Uh, Leanne, thank you so much for being on the podcast and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Eric, so much. And I just adore your podcast and the modern bar cart. Keep it up. Cheers to you. Cheers. And your team. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always 
reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed. Awesome Garnish Insights by Leanne Lavin, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.